Today is also Palm Sunday, um, but we did that passage about a week ago. So today our passage will be on the Lord's Supper. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 35. Matthew 26, verse 17 to 35. Let us pray. Father, once again, speak your truths to us that indeed we may be children, we may live as children of your light, children of your truth, that your word will indeed set us free. We ask then, let your word come into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, 17 to 35. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to talk about three areas. The first will be the Lord's Supper and its significance. The second will be the fact that God knows us, not just the present, not just what's in our hearts, but God knows us even in the future. And the third then is Jesus travails with us. But look, let's look first at the Lord's Supper. Jesus, in verse 26, sorry, my, I don't have progressives now, so I keep putting my glasses on and taking them off. In verse 26, Jesus, it says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, 
Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We have very different ideas about what the Lord's Supper is. On the one extreme, it is just, well, every Sunday we have it, or once a month, whichever, we come, we line up, we get it, and then we go back. And it means very little. It's part of the ritual that we, uh, we habitually observe. And often then we lose sight of what it really means. And the other extreme is that we think that there is something very magical about the Lord's Supper, that if we took it and ate it, we would be healed of all our diseases And so we have two extremes and somewhere along the way we wonder what really the Lord's Supper is. But let's look first at what Jesus, how the disciples would have understood when Jesus took the bread. In verse 26, it says that Jesus took the bread, broke it, and then he said, here you go, this is for you, this is my body given for you. What would have been in the disciples' minds when Jesus gave them the bread? It wasn't something that was totally new to them. That throughout the three years that Jesus was with them, he told them, he taught them about what the body was. Also, that in the traditions of the disciples, they also had ideas of what this body is. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Jeremiah 15, verse 16, can we turn to that? This is what... Jeremiah says, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And so the concept of the word of God being food wasn't new to either the disciples or to the Jews. It was in their tradition that the word of God would be like food, and you take it and you eat. And Jeremiah says, They were my joy and my heart's delight. To eat God's food then is to embrace, is to absorb, is to take in what God says. It is to say, I accept it and I want it as part of my life. I want it to change my life. I want it to give me strength. I want it to give me life. And so the disciples could have understood from traditions that eating the body of Christ was taking his word and believing his word. Again, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here again, the word of God is associated with bread. To eat the bread, to eat the body of Christ, or to eat anything, would be to absorb, to take in the word. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus makes it very clear. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then a few verses down, verse 49 to 51, he says this, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So when Jesus gave the bread to the disciples, 
The disciples already knew what he was talking about, that this is me, this is my body, but this is also my word, all that I had taught you. This is what I give to you. And it's a response, their response to decide whether to eat it, which meant, I believe in all that you say, I believe in your word, or it is for them to reject it. So the first thing that we understand as we come forward to take the Holy Communion is that we want to receive the Word of God. We want the Word of God to be part of our lives. It is, in a sense, the only response in this worship service now with COVID-19. I mean, we can't sing, we can't do very much. And most of the time, we're actually spectating. We're just spectators at a worship service and watching one after another, the worship leader, the prayer leader, the pastor perform and you're just sitting there. But at the Holy Communion, that's when you respond and you say, I come forward to take the bread. And when I do that, I'm saying, I believe in God's Word and I want God's Word to be in my life. I accept and I receive the Word of God. I receive all that Jesus has taught me. That's the first thing about the bread. So remember, when you take the bread later on, as you take the wafer, you're saying, this is the Word of God. This is the bread of the body of Christ, and I take it into myself. I receive the Word of God. And then the drink. What does the drink mean? In verse, in verse 27, Jesus then took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood. The drink that Jesus gave them represented the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There are two sides to this, two, two meanings to this. First is the blood of the covenant. In the Old Testament, whenever a covenant was made, and very few covenants, first was the covenant of Noah, then the covenant of Abraham. And in that covenant, a, cow, a, a bull was cut into half, the blood was spilled, and then the participants would stand by the bulls and by the blood and exchange a covenant. It was a covenant made by blood. They didn't drink it, but it was a covenant made by blood in the sense that it was in the presence of the blood as the blood flowed out. And this was a binding covenant. A binding covenant meant then that it would never be broken. Whatever happens, whatever you do, the covenant never breaks God keeps the covenant. But the second thing about blood is that it is first the life of the animal, a life of the person to whom the blood belongs. It is life-giving. And that blood also is used to atone or to pay for the sins of people. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10 to 11, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10 to 11, this is what the law says right from the beginning, I will set my face, and this is God saying, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. God took the drinking of blood very seriously. It was a ter terrible crime. If you eat blood, I will remove you. I will set my face against you, remove you from the people. But why? The reason for this is for the life of a creature is in the blood. The life of the creature is in the blood. And so to drink the life of the creature is to, although the animal is slaughtered, in the Torah, the understanding is that there is at least some mercy that you don't completely take the animal. 
But in some pagan beliefs too, to drink the blood of an animal means that you become that animal. Which is why in very many of these civilizations, early civilizations, hun- hunters would drink the blood of a jaguar to give them speed, or a lion to give them power. To drink then the blood was both to remove the life from that animal as well as to take that life into yourself. And that was forbidden by God. And then it continues, And I had given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood also of the bulls and the lambs was to pay for the sins of the people. So what does this mean? When Jesus gave them the drink and he said, This is my blood. He was saying several things. First, it is a covenant between God and you. Second, he was saying that this blood is my life. When you drink it, my life comes into you. Although drinking the blood of animals was forbidden, when Jesus gave his blood, he's saying that my life comes into you and that is what God honours. But the third then, as you drink that cup that represents the blood of Christ, it is that it pays for your sin. What that means is that whatever your sin is, God has forgiven you completely. Now then, where is judgment? As people would often ask, if I am saved by grace, if everything is by grace, then why don't I keep on sinning? Isn't, hasn't that been sometimes that question? What is this grace about? When God forgives all my sin, then where is judgment? Where was the judgment that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25 about the sheep and the goats? What judgment is there left when we have been saved, when all has been forgiven? Paul answers this question in Romans chapter 6, verse 15 onwards. I don't have it here, but Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul asked the same question. He said, you all ask, if we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, then why can't we just keep on sinning? What's wrong with continuing to sin? If there is no judgment, then surely we should be allowed to sin and all our sins will be forgiven again and again and again. Paul doesn't deal with that directly. He doesn't say this is true or that's not true. But what he says is this, when you serve something or someone, you become that slave, the slave of that thing, and that thing becomes your master. And so even though you have been forgiven completely, if you want to choose to serve sin, then sin becomes your master and you become the slave of sin. And sin then has control over your life and is bound to destroy your life. Paul doesn't talk about whether you go to heaven or you go to hell if you sin, but Paul makes clear that do you really want to be the slave of sin? Because if you obey everything that sin or the devil tells you, then you're walking straight into your own destruction. And so while all our sins are forgiven, but the good thing about knowing that our sin is forgiven is that we no longer worry about tripping up. One of the worst things to be told, and I'm sure you've tried it before, if someone tells you, you commit this sin or you do this wrong thing one more time, you're going to die. Chances are you're going to do it. Have you ever had a warning from your boss? And we were joking about it. Well, we weren't actually joking about it. We were quite serious, but we said, if your employee gets one warning letter, 
chances are they better quit. Why? Because when we tell them, one strike down, three strikes you go, you're bound somehow to commit the next strike. Out of fear, out of frustration, out of self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know what it is. But when we give you one warning and say you do it again, that's two warnings, and you do it the third time, you're going to die. Often, we will end up doing that. That's human nature. And so when God says you do it one more time, I'm going to punish you, it's we are bound, almost like stuck to doing the wrong thing. But here God is saying, never mind. Fail all you want, all you need to. You try, you fail, you try, you fail. Never fear failure. You can try your best to follow Jesus, let Jesus be your Lord, but if you fail, that's fine, I forgive you. Your sins have already been forgiven. But that's no license to say then, in that case, I will be the slave of sin, because that would be following your destruction. But if you set in your heart, I will follow Jesus, and then you fail, and Jesus says, that's fine, try it again. You try it again, and you fail, Jesus says, fine, that's fine. Try it a million times. Fail a million times and that's fine. Just keep trying. Then we have that freedom to want to follow Jesus again and again and to make it right the next time. And so it's so important to know that our sins have all been forgiven and this is irrevocable. Jesus has sealed it with his blood and he says that when you take this, this drink you are saying, I am saying to you that your sins have been forgiven, washed away. But Jesus is also saying that my life is in you now. I am your master and you follow me. And as we take Jesus as our master, as Jesus lives through us, then we indeed live life to the fullest. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 then, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. Basically, we choose to let Jesus live through us. How does that work? That works when we say, Lord Jesus, just teach me how to live. Guide me in the things that I do. Tell me what is good. Tell me what is not good. And then give me strength to do it. And so when you come for communion, when you take communion, you're remembering two things. When you take the bread, you are saying, God, I receive your word. All that you teach me, all that you promise me, all that you call me to do, I want to follow. And then when you take the cup, you're saying, God, thank you that all my sins have been forgiven. And now, please live in me. So that's the Holy Communion. But the next thing we see is that God knew, even where Jesus was giving them the bread and telling them that this is my blood spilled for you and given to you, this sacrifice was given for you, Jesus already knew what was happening in the lives and the hearts of his disciples. Jesus knew, for example, that Peter and all the disciples, Peter would deny him, and all the disciples would flee from him. In verse 31, Jesus says that very, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. 
And then Peter said, even if all fall away on count of you, I never will. And Jesus tells him, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus knew Peter more than Peter understood himself. Jesus knew. Peter had a, maybe an overinflated idea of himself. But most of us do. But Jesus, when he knew Peter, wanted to warn Peter of the pitfalls, wanted to let Peter know that he would deny him. When Jesus said he would deny me three times before the rooster crows, it's very significant. First of all, it means that it would be before dawn. The rooster crows every day before dawn. And so Jesus was saying, three times you will, dis you will disown me even before the break of dawn. But three times is significant because in the tradition of the Jews in the Old Testament, the witnesses of two witnesses plus the person who makes the claim that makes three people seals is evidence of a truth. Basically, it's not just a slip of the tongue. If you said something once, you say, oh, sorry, I, I forgot, I lost my mind. Even if you said it twice, you would say, well, it was an accident. But when you say it three times, it means that I'm dead serious. This is exactly what I mean. And we see later in the next chapter that Peter actually swore and he cursed and said, by God, I do not know Jesus. What Jesus was saying is that Peter would disown him so clearly, it would not just be a slip of the tongue, he will be so clear that he does not know Jesus. And that's a terrible thing. Peter could not accept it. Peter could not believe that he would do a thing like this. And Jesus had to warn him first. And then Jesus had to allow him to fail, allow him to fail so that he could learn and he could change, he could understand more about himself. Most of us would not believe that we could fall. But that's a big warning for us that we don't know ourselves as much as we think we do. Often we thrive when we seem to be doing well as a Christian. Whether we are doing, enjoying ourselves as Christians, enjoying reading the Word of God, enjoying teaching others, enjoying worship, we need to take heed, as Paul says, let everyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. We need always to know that we don't know ourselves very much. It may not even be that Jesus understood, knew Peter's future. It may simply be that Jesus knew Peter as he was and knew that while Peter thought so wonderfully of his zeal for God, what Jesus could see through was that Peter was actually quite flaky. Good friends know their friends. Parents know their children. I remember my mum used to tell me what I would do and I would look at her defiantly and say, how do you know this is what I'm going to do? And my mum would just say, because I'm your mother and you're my son. <laughs> Invariably, I did what she would, tell me, she would predict. Because parents understand their children when they're close to them. Mothers understand their sons when they're close to them. Jesus understood, God understood Peter, even though Peter himself did not understand himself. And so when we come to the table, we need to acknowledge that we may not be as strong, as fervent, as godly as we imagine ourselves to be. 
which is why we pray, and often at the communion, and every week we come to pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us away, lead us not into temptation, lead us away from temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is an acknowledgement of how weak and how frail we are, even when we do not think we are. And to say, God, I really don't know. I could be like Peter, one moment claiming how much I love you, one moment being strong in you, one moment being a leader in the church, being a pastor, and yet I know that my heart may be weak and I really don't know how strong I really am. Lead me away from sin and deliver me from evil. That's the attitude that we need to have always because none of the disciples, it says in the last, in verse 35, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. No one would believe that they would desert Jesus. No one would believe that he would deny Jesus. Jesus saw through them and lovingly he told them, this is exactly what you do. And yet, at the same time, he was offering his blood to them and saying, but I've forgiven you. I love you. You will fall. Watch. You will fall and see for yourself. But I still love you. And so this is a story of our weakness and God's redemption. We don't really know how weak we are. But God already says, even when you fall, I am with you and I've forgiven you. But he did a different thing with Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot's conduct was somewhat different. In verse 23, Jesus says, The one who has dipped his hand to the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. Here was a very stern warning by Jesus to Judas. It's okay for me to die. It's, it's stated. It's meant for me to die. But the one who betrays me, it would be so painful for him that it would be better if he did not, if he was not born. And rather than turning around and repenting, Judas then challenged Jesus, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. It couldn't be that Judas did not know that Jesus was, was calling him out. Because just the chapter before, Judas had gone out and had made a deal with the elders and the leaders of the, of the temple. And he had already made a deal, an agreement with them that he would betray Jesus. So obviously, Judas knew that he was going to betray Jesus. Was he doubting that Jesus knew? Was he challenging Jesus and saying, you really know? You think it's me? I don't know. But definitely Judas did not take heed of that warning and he was defiant to God. The question raised is, would Judas have been given a chance to repent? Would he have been forgiven if he had repented? And also another thing was, would he have could he have changed his mind? Could he have turned away from betraying Jesus? Well, we can't speculate on the second one because as in all narratives, it happened. So we don't know whether Judas could have repented. Surely Jesus would have to die. 
But it could have been someone else. It could have been one of the Pharisees. It could have been one of the leaders of the synagogue who would betray Jesus then if Judas had repented. But that's way too speculative and we wouldn't think about that. But the important question is this. Could Judas have repented after he had betrayed Jesus? Could he have been forgiven? Maybe, I'm not sure. That too would have been speculative. Jesus did say that woe to him who betrays me it were better if he were not born. But what was Jesus saying with that? Could Jesus have seen the chain of events unfolding? That Judas would do one thing, would betray Jesus, and then go on in a cycle, in a series of events that would lead to catastrophe? That in his remorse, he would not turn for forgiveness, but rather he would kill himself and end it all without forgiveness, without seeking forgiveness. Could Jesus have been warning Judas that don't do it because you will enter into a cycle of events that will spiral all the way down and that will destroy your lives? There have been times when we, when the Holy Spirit tells us not to do something, we say small sin, never mind. And yet the moment we commit it, it leads us into a spiral that goes down and down. I remember when I was practicing as a lawyer, I decided to tell a little lie. It was about you know, who owned the building. Actually, our company owned the entire building. And we had some very, very bad tenants uh, who spoiled the reputation. Part of them belonged to our company as well. Of course, when the prospective uh, lessee came, we said, um, we wanted to get him to lower his rent. I, I mean, to um, no, we wanted to buy a piece. Of, we wanted to lease from one of the owners of that building, and we wanted to lower the value of the building. So I told lie after lie. I said, "Well, look at all these clients, all these other tenants. They're real lousy. Actually, they belong to our company." And I started a little lie, and my manager told me, hey, "Mingli, don't do things like that, lah. This is very bad." I said, well, I'm going to clinch this deal and I'm going to make this owner sell his, his unit real cheap. And one lie led to another. As the owner started questioning me, I had to cover my tracks and tell another lie and then another lie and another lie. And in the end, I was all wrapped up in lies. And my poor manager was scratching his head and saying, how is this fellow going to extricate himself? In the end, I had to face the, cli the prospective client and say, I told you complete lies. Of course, he stormed off and we lost the contract. But you know, sometimes a little lie, a little sin could spiral and the Holy Spirit could be telling us, please don't do it. I've worked with drug addicts and often sin is very beguiling. Tells when they're out of prison five times, you know, there's this common saying, inside regret, outside forget. And it's so true, we regret all our sin and we see how bad sin has been inside the prison. Outside, we forget everything. And we see this as a tiny temptation, uh, just one tablet. When the Holy Spirit says, don't do it, they do it anyway. And it goes further and further into sin until they end up in jail again. But for all of us, it happens too. Sometimes you're about to utter a very angry word and the Holy Spirit says, hold back, don't say it. And then you say it anyway and you see yourself creating a series of events that spiral down to a big fight, into, into real conflict. Jesus was warning Judas, don't start this cycle of events. 
that will spiral to your, to your destruction. I know you, you will betray me. Perhaps there is a chance that you would not do it. And if you did not do it, then it will not go into a cycle where you will no longer even think about repenting, but you will kill yourself after you have done this deed. Jesus, in his love, warns us. Sometimes when we are inclined to sin, even when our minds lie to us and tell us this is just a small little sin, Jesus warns us that we could enter into a spiral and hurt ourselves badly. So the second thing is that Jesus actually knows us through and through, knows our future. The third is that Jesus says that I will not, in verse 29, he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that I will not drink again until all of you come to me at the end of time. You see, drink is about celebration. Drinking for weddings, drinking for birthdays, drinking to enjoy yourselves. What Jesus is saying is that I will not be enjoying myself, I will not be celebrating until each of you comes back into my kingdom. What this says is that Jesus is committed to us completely. And we see that in the previous parable about sheep and goats when he says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Whatever you don't do to the least for the least of them, you, do, you don't do to me. What Jesus is saying is that I identify fully with you. When Jesus confronted Saul um, on the road to Damascus, he said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It wasn't, why are you persecuting the other Christians? He was saying, why do you persecute me? Because Jesus takes each of us, lives, the fates, the suffering, the joys of each of us personally. And Jesus travails with us that even as he sacrificed himself, he's saying, from now to the end of time, I will be rooting for you. But not only will I be rooting for you, I'll be travailing with you. I will be crying when you are crying. I'll be rejoicing when you are rejoicing. And I will be encouraging each of you. I live personally for each of you. And until we come together to celebrate, I will not celebrate at all. That's God's commitment to us. And sometimes we go through very, very painful paths. We wonder if God even knows, or even cares. And what this story tells us is that God not only cares, He suffers along with you. He suffers together with us until that day when we come victorious, we all drink and celebrate together. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, let's remember some of these things. At first, we take the Word of God and we accept it and we believe it receive it. Second, that we are completely forgiven. Fail, try, fail, try, fail, try, doesn't matter. But you need to know who you serve and you want to serve Jesus. And then we remember that Jesus already knows how weak we are, how frail we are. We come to God uncertain of ourselves, but certain of God's forgiveness for us. Let us pray. Father, you know each of us through and through and you love us nonetheless. 
You knew that Peter would sin. Peter would deny you clearly and even with an oath and a curse. And you loved him and you forgave him even before he committed that sin. God, you know how frail we are. You know how sinful we are. We don't even know it ourselves. We don't even believe it ourselves. We don't know the darkness in our own hearts. We don't know how evil our motivations are. We don't know that even right after this, we may go on and sin against you. But we thank you that you forgave us ahead of time. You, you have already forgiven us. We pray then, Lord, that even as we realize in our subsequent actions how sinful we are, that we may also know this one certainty that you have forgiven us and that you call us to live and follow you once again. So God, now as we come to take the Holy Communion, we ask that you live in us. We ask that you will assure each of us convincingly that we have been forgiven by you regardless of what we have done. That all you ask of us is that we become, we call you our master, the one who loves us and gives your life for us, that we call you our master and we your slaves. That we will follow you and we will try again, even regardless of how many times we fail, we will still want to follow you. Then, Lord, you mold us step by step. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, last rise.